and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle, located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, Senior Pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, did that one too. Well, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, where James talks about having trust in God amidst trials. Trust amidst trials. He writes, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, but let patient endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete or mature, lacking nothing. Hey, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally or generously and without reproach, without ridicule, and it will be given to him. But let him or her ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Some of you have been to the beach recently and saw waves tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from, anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's talk about trust amidst trials. Well, first of all, here in verse 1 of James chapter 1, we get a look at the pastor and his congregation. The New Testament has several Jameses. Uh, there was the disciple named James, the son of Alphaeus, that we know very little about. Uh, there was another James who was the father of Judas, that, uh, the other Judas disciple. We know very little about that, Daddy James. We know more about James, the brother of John, who was one of the three along with Peter that often got those special assignments from the Lord, like getting to be with Jesus there at his transfiguration. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Peter were there, and so that James had a very special thing happen for him. He is the James who was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We see that that Herod uh, to, uh, had, had uh, that James killed, James the apostle killed, or James the first apostle, because in a way, the James that authored this letter is also an apostle, but that he is the uh, brother of Jesus. Matthew 13:55 names some of the brothers of Jesus and it says they did not believe in him. And so before Jesus died and rose again, even his own family, uh, Mary perhaps, but the brothers did not believe in him. He probably didn't believe in Jesus until salvation, uh, under salvation until after Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians talks about the gospel, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, according to the scriptures. He rose, and he started appearing to people. And one of the ones listed in there is James. And in this case, it's talking about James, the 
half-brother of Jesus who had Joseph as his daddy and Mary as his mama, but he's half because, of course, Joseph wasn't Jesus' daddy. Uh, Jesus had existed always, and the Holy Spirit miraculously brought about the virgin birth, right? The Lord's brothers, in Acts 1.14, were told the Lord's brothers uh, are, were in the upper room praying with the disciples. So apparently, multiple of the brothers did turn to Jesus after he rose from the dead, and they saw him alive and said, huh, you're more than just our brother. <laughs> you're God who rose from the dead, and how powerful that is. We know the name of um, one of those other brothers because we also have a letter that he wrote. And who would that be? Jude, right. James and Jude were brothers of Jesus and both wrote those letters. Very good. Well, back in Acts chapter 8, we read that after Stephen was killed, the church at Jerusalem was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The apostles mostly stayed in Jerusalem. There had been as many as 5,000 disciples right there, and then they were scattered about and around. And every once in a while, something like that happens to scatter a church. After Hurricane Katrina, um, Fred Luter, who was the pastor of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church, still is as far as I know, I don't think he's retired yet, uh, Fred Luter, the great African-American uh, Southern Baptist pastor in New Orleans, all of a sudden his congregation was everywhere but New Orleans. <laughs> Just him and a few of the leaders were there. Actually, he wasn't even there because he had to go to Atlanta for a while, and actually an Atlanta pastor gave the pulpit to Fred Luter to speak, and that message was carried out to Houston where a lot of the people of Franklin Avenue were, along with parts of Louisiana and all over the south and even up into northern cities as the church got scattered. There was a diaspora, a scattering of all of them. By Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we read the scattered disciples got as far as Phoenicia, the island of Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. Somewhere in there, two things happened. Two things happened. First of all, the apostles began to traveling from Jerusalem, where there weren't as many disciples around, out to these works of where these disciples who had gone and started sharing about Jesus, the apostles went out and started encouraging them in the Lord, checking in on the work and those things. But the second thing that happened was the church in Jerusalem that was left behind started raising up pastor elders who became the leaders, the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And after that, every church that got planted had a, uh, had, had a plurality of leaders, and usually there was a first pastor among the equals. They were all equal in Christ. They all had something to offer, but usually there was a first among equals. And the book of Acts makes very clear the one of those for Jerusalem became James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, so you'd call him like we would say senior elder today, like the position that I hold in this church. So we know that they started viewing him that way because remember Acts chapter 12, 1 through 3, James, the brother of John, is killed. Just a few verses later when Peter escapes from prison, he says, hey, go tell James about this so that he and the other leaders of the church can know. And you're like, wait a second, James the uh, apostle was just killed, so who's this James? Half-brother of Jesus. Uh, that tradition tells us became that pastor there. So, and, and you see that in Galatians 1. Remember when Paul got saved and he went to Jerusalem, what did he do? He met with Peter. Who else did he meet with? James. He met with the key apostle. He also met with the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James there, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, in Acts 15, 
when they have the key Jerusalem council and they're making sure they're getting the gospel right, that they're not gonna say dumb things to Gentile uh, disciples about having to do all the cultural Jewish things. You know, Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish by culture to become Christian by faith, right? And so they didn't have to be circumcised and obey the Old Testament law the way that was now optional for the Jew, Jewish background believers. The Gentile believers didn't have to do any of those things. And the last word in Acts 15 comes from who? James, the key pastor at Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus. Again, in Acts 21, Paul comes back into town. He's got relief offering money to bring, but he also knows it's a very delicate political situation. There was danger of rioting in Jerusalem. What does Paul do when he comes back into town? He's got Titus with him, who's not a Jewish background believer. He's a Gentile background believer. He's got others with him who are Jewish background. And Paul goes and he submits himself to the James and the elders at Jerusalem, because anytime you go to a local church to do something, you ought to make sure you work through that church's leadership, right? And Paul, even though he was the great apostle, the writer of so much in the New Testament, when he rolls into Jerusalem in Acts 21, he makes sure that he submits himself to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, and the key pastor there is James, because it says James and the brothers, right? James and this plurality of leaders that was there. Okay, so that's who wrote the letter. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, and look what it says in verse one, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's kind of neat, you know, uh, that he viewed himself not only as a servant of God, but also he's come to recognize, listen, you know, I grew up with Jesus and he is my Lord and Savior. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had recognized who he was even though he had grown up with him and at one time did not believe in him. He had come to believe and that's pretty good. Now, we know the addresses of the letter from the second part, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, when you hear the words 12 tribes, what do you think of? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. So. This is one of the earliest letters. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem disciples have been scattered all over, just like Fred Luter found a way to communicate with his dispersed congregation um, all over this country after Hurricane Katrina. He's looking for a way to write a letter that will get to those Jewish background believers. So that's what they all were at the start, right? The church at Jerusalem, the first church. It's only a few chapters later before you get the first Gentile convert. So he uses this words, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's referring to the Jewish believers that had worshiped together in Jerusalem and now are literally all over. And as they network with one another, he just trusted that the first one that got the letter would, would copy it and give it to the next one. And they just, it would fan out like that. And it worked out pretty well that way as they traveled those Roman roads and met with one another. And of course, it's for the broader body of Christ as well, all the way down to this day. But that first audience would have been those who worshiped in Jerusalem, now had been dispersed to that persecution that started when Stephen was killed all out, fanning out out there. So do you get that? All right. Well, let's look at, we're gonna look uh, 
on these Wednesday nights, uh, you know, why things are getting back to the new normal or toward the new normal, we're going to take some time to walk through James together, and we're going to get um, some of what Pastor James told his people. Now, uh, James uh, was, um, uh, he would have made a good uh, Baptist pastor because he's not making suggestions. <laughs> he gives 50 commands in this little letter. It's got five or six chapters. He just keeps on rolling them out, you know, and we've got some here too. He definitely knows what he wants their discipleship to look like as they follow the Lord. Well, first of all, in verses two through four, James wants them to think differently about whatever they were struggling with. Think differently about what they were struggling. Look what he says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, note he didn't say if you encounter various trials. He said when you do. Uh, the Apostle Paul later wrote, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. If you stand up for the Lord one way or another, you're going to get ridiculed, mocked, sometimes some people beaten, some t people killed, right? Yeah, it's happened in our country and other countries historically. It's starting to happen a lot more now. You know, a street preacher went into Seattle with the climate that's there now preaching the gospel, and they whooped him this past week. They just beat him, beat him down, you know, and that kind of thing happens. You have encountered brothers and sisters that have experienced that. I have too. But note he says not if, he says when. So Elizabeth likes to say everybody gets their turn on the merry-go-round, right? Uh, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, I don't know about you guys, but my first reaction amidst trials is not to express joy. And if I was to have you raise your hand, if you always, the first time something bad comes along in your life, you say, whoopee, this is terrible, I love it, Yes. We think about people like that that get excited outwardly like that, and we think they're bonkers, right? And probably for good reason. Um, so what does he mean when he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, when trouble comes your way? Well, he's encouraging them to think. We are so used to feeling and sometimes letting the world know what we're feeling by posting about it online or this way, that way. We're so used to broadcasting how we're feeling that we as Christians have sometimes lost the great art of pulling back and thinking using our Bible as our filter for everything that's in front of us, right? So oftentimes our uh, hairdresser, our, uh, our uh, person cutting our hair, the barber, you know, um, our people at the place we're getting our oil changed or the people we're picking up this or that, you know, the, in the line with us shopping, the seat next to us, the table next to us at a restaurant. Uh, if we're online, we put it out there for dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people to see. Uh, we just express and emote before we seriously think. And James, right off the bat, he says, I need you while you're out there scattered in this Roman Empire and hurting because you're not back in Jerusalem at our wonderful church services. He says, I need you guys to be thinking right now, to be thinking about what you're struggling with. Feelings will only see the bad in trials. Thinking with your Bible open will lead to a different perspective in the midst of your trials that helps see you through it. He uses the word count there, and you've probably heard this, but it's kind of a counting language, right? When you are doing accounting, you've got assets and you've got liabilities. And when we think of trials, we oftentimes immediately put them in our liabilities column. 
And what he's doing is, James is saying, Pastor James is telling us there's a way to think about your trials that in your mind at least you understand that you're moving it in your mind from the liability column to the asset column. And that takes, that takes thinking in the midst of the hardships uh, that you're experiencing. Well, how do you do that? Well, verse three shows how. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. And the word for complete in verse four could be translated maturity. So uh, you experience the testing of your faith, it produces endurance. In the midst of endurance, you're moving toward maturity uh, as you go along. Now, I learned this in athletics. Um, I never did like the running that our soccer coaches wanted us to do. I hated it, you know? I hated it. But when we won a lot of games in the last 10 minutes because we were in better shape than the other team, I learned to be grateful that my coach made me do what I didn't want to do, right? Uh, I really appreciate guitar players. It's no secret, I've told you here, it's my favorite instrument. Man, I love guitar playing. I tried to do it two or three times, I could never get past the calluses, right? Because if you're gonna play the guitar, you gotta get through the calluses and the pain of that, right? To get to the other side. Um, for you guys, I played guitar right-handed, although I would do it anyway. Um, but uh, so, now there's a problem with those analogies though, because the problem is that we can see why the trial is worth it in the long run in the sports and music realms, but we don't think hard enough to see how it's worth it in the long run in the spiritual realm. Often that's the case, right? We're so busy feeling bad about what we're struggling with that, that we can't connect the big picture to why we would persevere in the midst of that, why God would do that with us. And so, um, but I didn't always understand it in soccer either. I had to trust, I had to trust that what my coach was asking me to do would be relevant somehow to the game right? Uh, I could see it with the running because even though I hated doing the running, I knew when I was still running hard in the 80th minute and the other team was gassed. I could see that. But some of the drills we would do that he was trying to develop muscle memory in my feet or in my head or, you know, in the shoulders or whatever it was, I didn't understand. Some of the drills where we'd run to an awkward seeming position, I didn't understand. I played on a select team one time and none of us understood what the coach was asking us to do. But we played a scrimmage and I did what the coach asked to do and he praised me up and down and I was like, well that felt pretty good to be praised up and down. I still didn't know why I was doing it. It took a little more time to understand how we were ripping the other team to shreds because I was doing what the coach said to do and had practiced that in, in there. I had, when I had a good relationship with the coach, I would trust him even when he was leading me through something that I didn't want to experience. Is that tracking with you? Any of you guys out there? Let me ask you this. Is your relationship with God good enough that you'll trust him to bring growth and good out of your trial? You don't understand how any good could come from the trial, but you love God, your heavenly coach and you've been growing in your relationship with him and you know he cares about you and you know he wants you to succeed. And so on the basis of that relationship alone, as you come into a time where you don't fully understand, you trust him anyway. Some of this gets into that understanding his sovereignty, understanding his providence. Look in your hymnal again. Let's see if we can find a great uh, hymn by William Cowper. I'm not gonna ask you to sing again but uh, let's try to find God moves in a mysterious way. 
It's number 54. William Cooper was a lifelong friend of John Newton, Amazing Grace. When John Newton did the only hymns, it was mostly Newton's hymns with a few of Cowper's thrown in. Uh, Cooper, they say Cooper even though it sounds like Cowper. Um, And uh, so uh, he's the one that wrote, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Fascinating study because he was a lifelong man who struggled with depression. In our day, medication would have helped William Cooper cope with life. It may have also made it so the great hymns didn't come out. Some of the best art and music have come from those in the past that didn't know what to do with themselves. Several times in his life, he tried to commit suicide. Um, This is a, a brother that really struggled but he also, from the depths of his pain as he turned to the Lord, uh, things like there's a fountain came out. Listen to this one. God moves in a mysterious way his glorious wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the raging storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The threatening clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. God moves in a mysterious way as glorious wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the raging storm. And when you get another version of this hymn, there was another line in there that says, um, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Hey, it's been raining all week, really glum, right? Is the sun up there still? It is, we just can't see it because of the clouds. And sometimes life's like that. And you just have to trust that in the midst of the trials, God still is smiling on you and has a purpose and a plan. Sometimes that's harder than others. Notice James doesn't take any time to worry about the source of the trial. They were experiencing the trial because of demonic-inspired persecution that led to this scattering around. They could, they could draw it out, and they could have blamed the terrorists, like Saul, who one day did convert, but he had started that persecution, him and his buddies. Uh, they could have certainly blamed Satan and the demons for demonically inspiring it. And, um, you know, sometimes we experience trials and we can point to our own sinful choices. I remember trying to minister to a lady in the hospital one time and I said, I'm so sorry you're going through lung cancer. What, what a, and it came on as such a surprise. She said, it's not a surprise. I smoked three packs of cigarettes, you know, for <laughs> two or three packs a day for, you know, 50 years. You know, no wonder I've got this. And, uh, you know, so sometimes we can draw those connections, right? And other times we can't. Other times we suffer because of the sinful choices of others. And that is a trial that came our way. We didn't want it. Somebody else brought it upon us. And other times we, just because we live in a sin-stained world, um, in which all of our bodies and many of our minds will eventually break down, right? I mean, you live, you're going to experience the breakdown of the body some sooner than others, and that all goes back to original sin. In fact, the Bible teaches that all of creation is groaning. The animals are also groaning, saying, Daggum, Adam and Eve! You know, the, uh, uh, you know, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and it's not, you know, but the trials have come into the world for those reasons. James covers it all under various trials. He doesn't want them to spend too much time blaming themselves or blaming others. You're in a trial, and regardless of the source of your trial, from God's perspective, your faith is being tested or exercised, which leads to the development of endurance, which leads you to become a mature believer. This takes thinking the way God thinks about stuff, and we don't like to do that in the midst of our feeling bad about stuff, right? So he's encouraging his church to continue to be a thinking church. Do you consider the trial itself a joy? No, and I bet James didn't either. 
You consider joy that as you meet this trial with God's presence, he'll use it to help you become a faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus Christ. For this to happen, you're going to have to take the truth of God's word and regularly confront the way you feel about things. And that's exactly what James was encouraging them to do. So where does victory for the Christian begin? Right here. In the mind, as you claim God's word, and you know that he has a purpose and plan for growing you and using you even in the midst of trials, whether you brought them on yourself, whether it's the choices of others, or whether it's just this is that kind of world. So first he says, think differently about what you struggle with. And then in verse five, you're supposed to pray fervently about what you're thinking about. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, God isn't ever out to get you, brothers and sisters. That's just not how he works. Others have been stingy toward you. God is generous toward you. He wants to, to bless you and I more than we want to be blessed. He wants us to succeed, and he help, knows how to help us succeed. We often define that differently. That's why we have to think. But then it says, if you need wisdom about what you're facing, ask God, and he's not going to withhold from you uh, wisdom to help you get through the trial by the way that you're now thinking differently. Um, he wants you to ask him for his help in processing what you're going through. He's not going to ridicule you for asking. It's, he's not going to reproach you saying, oh man, not you again. Campbell, what are you doing back here? Well, God, I've got a new trial and you said you'd help see me through. And I need your perspective on this because I just want to view it all as bad, right? So it may look something like this. Father, I'm not sure all the reasons I'm encountering this trial. It only feels bad to me. But God, any trial never has the last word for your kids. You always have the last word for your children, God. I love that statement, don't you? God always has the last word. That thing you're struggling with, it doesn't need to define you and it doesn't need to have the last word for you. God will have the last word. He had the first word, he'll have the last one. So thank you for your presence in my life, Lord, as I go through this. Strengthen me, Lord, I'm on your side. Help me to see the ways you are going to display your glory through me during this time. So you think differently about what you're struggling with. You pray fervently about it. And then in verses six through eight, we're to trust confidently in God about what we're praying about. Look at what it says in verse six. But let him or her ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I've often heard that phrase from verse six grabbed out of context and then used wrongly. You probably have too. Ask in faith without any doubting. Verses two through five teach us how to take ask in faith without any doubting. So there are people that rip verse six out of context. They say that when we ask in faith without doubting the things, we are not, uh, let's see, um, when we ask in faith without doubting, the thing we are not doubting is that God will do what we ask him to do in prayer. That's how they take it, right? Ask in faith without doubting. What are you not doubting? That God will do what you're asking him to. You need to have faith that he'll do it. That's not what that text says at all, is it? That's not the, what we're supposed to not be doubting there. Paul asked God without doubting to take his way, away his thorn in the flesh, and God said no. The problem wasn't doubting. 
And the problem wasn't Paul's lack of faith. Paul had confidence that if God said no, it'd be for a greater yes, right? Paul's faith and confidence in God grew as he learned that God's grace is sufficient to grow us and use us even when our thorn in the flesh remains. So here's what it is. The call to ask in faith without doubting is the call to trust God whether or not he does what we think he ought to do. Ask in faith without doubting. What are you not doubting? You're not doubting that if God says no, it'll be for a greater yes. You're not doubting that he's in control even when the world seems out of control. You're not doubting that we have that kind of heavenly father, right? So it's not asking faith without doubting that he's got to do what you ask him to do if you get the faith formula right. It's God, as I ask you for this, you are the perfect heavenly father for me. You lead me to the other side of this. And if you say no, I'll take it as your greater yes. If you say wait, I'll wait on your timing. If you say yes now, I'll trust that that's also best for me. You're putting it all in God's hands, don't you see? And that's what you're not doubting in the midst of this. Well, the person who doubts, the double-minded person simply doesn't really trust God. The person of faith says, God may answer as I think he should, but he doesn't need me to for, him, for me to follow him. I'm going to follow him no matter what, right? I love how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember them, right? Remember what they told Nebuchadnezzar? Hey, hey guys, hey Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we ain't bowing down. That's the person who's asked in faith without doubting. Those are the people that did that. They modeled that there for us. The person of faith says, if God says no, I believe he has a greater yes coming. I've got it made simply by trusting him and following him. The double-minded person can't say that. Here's what the double-minded person does. You ready for this? They'll pray about something, hoping God will do it, but they'll also disobey God's word to try and bring it about themselves. <laughs> God, here's a trial, and I don't want to experience any more of it. So yeah, I'm asking you to take it away, but if I have to cheat or lie or do something against the Ten Commandments to make it go away, I'll go ahead and make it go away. That's a double-minded person. They're trying to put their, you know, cover every base, and they really don't believe the God base is going to come through. They certainly aren't going to change their behavior to yield to God if it means staying in that troublesome situation any longer. The person of faith says, man, I'm with God. God's got a call on my life. I'll do it even if it's difficult, even as I trust him, that I'll grow through it and he'll use it somehow to help glorify himself. Well, what's the problem with the double-minded person? The thinking is wrong, the praying is wrong, and the trust, it's really not there at all. It's really not there at all. Pastor James starts his letter by calling all Christians to really think and trust God amidst the trials that they're going through. And I hope that's true for you too. Whether you're going through an individual trial, whether you've been through one, you're in one now, or one's around the corner, whether that extends to somebody else you're praying for that you love and care very deeply about, uh, whether it involves your prayers right now for our church, this community, this state, this nation, um, this world. My goodness, on the way over here I heard that uh, Beijing is having a next round of coronavirus and they're locking things down. Uh, I've got a pastor friend and a uh, missionary friend from Ecuador who's been able to come back to the United States. He knows of four pastors who have died from the COVID-19. 
and many of the people that they serve there have as well. So, you know, golly, uh, this, uh, when H1N1 hit, 12,500 people died of it in America. The first year, 75,000 have in the decades since. So it didn't go away after one year like we want this thing to go away, right? After one season. But there came a new normal and, and has ever since. And so, um, you know, so yeah, we're going to keep on praying uh, for the impact of the thing locally, nationally, globally. Keep on being smart. Wash your hands is the number one thing you can do uh, to keep, and especially guys, because guys are gross. Guys are gross and don't wash their hands, so guess what? Guess who's dying more than the other? The men are dying more than the ladies around the world because they have gross hygiene habits and need to get better at it. Wash your hands like they say to wash, and that'll help you a whole lot too. All right, well, we have to get back to some kind of normal, right? And so we are going to uh, play some music up there during this time. And if you want to stay where you are and pray, that's fine. If you want to come to the front and pray, you can. If you want to come and pray with me, I will risk it and pray with you. Um, and, of course, you can pray with each other as well. So uh, let's make this God's time. And, uh, you know, after you uh, have finished praying, if you want to sit and wait till others seem to be done so you can talk to them, you can do that or slip out to the foyer and have conversations there. We're not in any hurry. We don't have a second prayer service coming afterwards. Uh, so let's make this the Lord's time. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.